0: This is exactly right.
1: Casefile is an award winning podcast that presents unforgettable true crime stories.
0: Presented by an anonymous host, Casefile delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser known cases that deserve more attention.
1: Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And
1: I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them.
0: Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes.
1: And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to
0: old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens.
1: Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold.
0: This is Buried Bones.
1: Hey, Kate, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. How about you?
1: I am hanging in there.
0: Well, good. I had a terrible night's sleep last night. Oh, no. Terrible. And it made me think about what your nighttime rituals are. And the most important thing, does Cora sleep with you and your wife? Or does Cora sleep somewhere else? Because I think that's part of nighttime rituals for me. That's the problem.
1: Yeah, you know, we when when we got Cora as a puppy, uh, she was uh, kept in a crate at night. And that was her comfort level. She would purposely put herself in the crate. And unfortunately, and, and not necessarily in, in a bad way, you know, I thought, well, when we drove across country to move to Colorado, I thought she would be most at ease in her crate while in the vehicle well after that long drive it was two days worth of driving and of course i'm stopping and letting her out and you know in the hotel room you know we're spending time together but she never wanted to go into her crate again
0: (laughs) she needs the (laughs) snuggling
1: yeah she she does she doesn't sleep with us but she has a bed on the floor in our bedroom and that's where she sleeps
0: Okay. And she never sneaks up and kind of does a little snuggle thing because my dogs totally do that all the time.
1: <laughs> no, no. Cora's a 90-pound yellow lab who oh, cannot no sneaking. <laughs> jump up on anything. And, and, and the reality is, is we don't want the dogs in the bed with us or the dog in the bed with us. So, you know, Cora has always been either in the crate or in her own bed on the floor.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, I can't get the dogs away from me. Both of them. And we did crate training for a long time. And and I know that that's important and that works for a lot of people. But we have Cavapoos, and they are just on top of us, the neediest, sweetest, cutest little dogs ever. They don't want any independence. And so I have one kind of pressed up against me, Ruby, and then one at my feet. And luckily, they've come to an agreement, a gentleman's agreement, on how to deal with their sleeping arrangement, because they can get a little jealous sometimes of each other. But this has worked out well. But I am someone who really likes to move around a lot. And so it has gotten me, I mean, I'm not used to being as confined as I am. So, but I mean, it's one of the parts of being a a pet owner is figuring out the nighttime stuff and, you know, what's comfortable for your family.
1: Yeah, you know, and and with my sleeping arrangement, you know, I have this whole pillow fortress. I flip flop. I'm a side sleeper. So I probably a hundred times a night, I'm going from right side to left side. So any animal right next to me would probably be flung onto the floor.
0: (laughs) But your wife hangs on. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Barely. Well, uh, I think getting a lot of sleep is so important. I've spent my whole life trying to figure out, you know, nighttime rituals and sleep hygiene and all that stuff. And part of it is just I always had a fear when I was a kid of just not being prepared for school and feeling run down. And, um, you know, I've suffered from insomnia off and on. And for us, you know, these episodes are so wonderful, but it takes a lot for me to remember everything and keep up with the dome of wisdom that is Paul Holes. And so I have to get a lot of sleep. So I'm always. I hope I'm on my game today for you.
1: You always are on your game. It's amazing what you are able to pull off, Kate.
0: We'll see. So forgive me if I bumble and stumble a little bit. We all do that sometimes. Um, (laughs) But this might be one of those times where I have to have a little bit of extra grace from you. So thank you in advance.
1: All right. Well, let's let's hear what you've got for me today.
0: This is a story where there are a couple of children who are victims in a family, and then there is one child who's a hero in the family. So a mixed bag of emotions for me. But again, you know, we tell these stories, the ones involving kids, just because I think they're important. They always say something to me. I pick them for a reason. So hopefully you feel the same way. This is going back to late 1800s Missouri. So let's go ahead and set the scene. My dad grew up in Missouri. He grew up in Vandalia. He went to the University of Missouri. He really was very proud from being from that state. Have you been to Missouri before?
1: I don't think so. I'm trying to remember. You know what, I I have a case that has a Missouri connection, but now that I recall, I never stepped foot into the state of Missouri
0: Okay, that's our next trip. When we talk about the imaginary road trip for you and I and Alexis, then <laughs> all three of us, Missouri's another stop. New York is one and Missouri's another and New England's another. I've already booked us for the next year and a half of all of our stops. But Missouri, I think, is a, it's a really great state, at least the parts that I've visited. You know, Vandalia, I just remember having really nice visits with my grandparents who were from the Depression era and had just massive gardens, Tight knit family, not rural, certainly, but Missouri for me felt very much like community, at least where my dad was from. And that's a lot about what happens with this story. So let's start from the beginning. I'm going to set the scene, which is pretty dramatic for the kinds of stories that we usually tell. 1894, Missouri. This is in Lynn County, Missouri. It's a rural area. And it's about 5 a.m on May 11th, which is a Friday. And there's a woman named Sally Carter, and she hears a knock at the door. Of course, she's not expecting anyone this early in the morning. She's bracing herself for something. But when she opens the door, she sees a six-year-old girl. She said her name is Nellie Meeks. So Sally takes a look at Nellie, and she is covered in dirt, and her clothes are all torn. She's bleeding from a deep cut on her forehead. And she seems to be just in a daze, which completely freaks out Sally. And she immediately takes the girl, before even getting the story, and tries to stop the bleeding from her head. And she's trying to figure out what happened. Just to tell people this, because I'm always aware of trigger warnings, there's no sexual assault that happens here that we know of. So that's not part of this story. That was initially my first fear when I read about it, just to pick it out. But this doesn't appear to be the case. Nellie is trying to tell a story, but she's barely making sense because of this head wound. But she says that she has narrowly escaped death. And she tries to retell this story. And so Sally sat her down and is trying to, you know, clean up this wound. Nellie says about five hours ago, which is about midnight, that there were two men who she didn't know at the Meeks' house. And this is her family. So she says that even though she can't even describe how many people are in her family at this point, she says the whole family's dead, all four of them. And they've been buried in a nearby cornfield. And she tells sally when sally says what happened to you she says this six-year-old says i was able to escape from these two bad men because she played dead through the night until they left and then she was able to sneak away and come to this woman's house i mean holy shit a six-year-old told this story and i will tell you in advance it's all true
1: Yeah, and this is at 5 a.m. in the morning?
0: It is, before the sun's up.
1: I'm wondering, did Sally's house have any lights on where Nellie could just kind of go towards the lights, or did Nellie know exactly where Sally's house was in the dark?
0: I think she knew. I think she knew that there was a house there, and maybe she had met this woman. This was not a, a neighbor that apparently she was close to. The research doesn't indicate that Sally was woken up, she was probably up, which would have been not unusual in eighteen, you know, ninety four. She was up at 5, so maybe there was some candlelight in the window or a lamp or something that she saw, or maybe she just went to the closest place. Who knows? But she found her way there. According to Murder by Gaslight, which is the wonderful blog that I like to use every once in a while to try to find some good stories, Mrs. Carter, Sally Carter, didn't have a man in the house, so her husband was not there. And sounds like she was a widow, so this is what she does. She sent her ten-year-old son, whose name was Jimmy, to the nearby cornfield to confirm this story. I mean, poor Jimmy. I mean, <laughs> I guess that's the eighteen hundreds. What else are you gonna do? But this kid goes out in the dark to try to find four buried bodies in a cornfield not far from his house. Wow.
1: Yeah. You know, I, yeah. My mind immediately goes to well. Uh, What if those two men were still there?
0: Well, yeah. What I wonder is if Mrs. Carter, if Sally Carter was so concerned about Nellie's medical condition that she didn't think it was a good idea to leave her alone. I'm not sure sending Jimmy out to go look around, but it's really, I'm sure, a scary situation. He walks over. He starts meandering around the field, which is not too far away, you know, somewhat close by. And he comes back and he says, I didn't see anything. I didn't find anything, but it's dark and he's 10. I'm not sure if he's looking for a freshly dug grave if all of these details are right and we find out that it is. So Jimmy comes back and says, I didn't find anything, Mom. And Nellie is still in a daze.
1: Yeah, you know, and these cornfields can be huge. And just if you're walking past a cornfield, if the corn has actually grown to a certain height, even if you have a disruption in the middle of that cornfield, if you are at street level or at land level, just walking, you can't see in the middle of the field. So I can see where even if you did have these bodies buried and the corn being disrupted in the area of, you know, the ingress, egress aspects, taking the bodies into the cornfield and then, of course, escaping out of the cornfield, you're going to disrupt certain parts of of this corn. But I could see where that would be easily missed, particularly at night. Now, I bet Jimmy, even at 10 years old, though, he's probably working in the fields and has familiarity Mm -hmm. with what this agricultural aspect is.
0: I agree. And I think that Jimmy was also very scared. I'm sure he wasn't armed. He came back in. He said, nothing's there. They both look at Nellie. I'm sure thinking, is this kid telling us the truth, even though she has a gash on her head? So she takes Jimmy by the hand and says, let's go. I'll show you exactly where it is. So in the dark of night, while she's bleeding with a bandage on, she points down to the ground. And there they find, after doing some sort of digging, because you can see the bodies coming through, the corpses of four members of her family, the entire family except for her. They were all piled together in a shallow grave. And the killer or killers, she's saying it's two men, so let's assume she's right here. The killers covered them up with straw. And that's how Nellie was able to track down very quickly where this happened. So there's, this is the hard details for me. She has an 18-month-old sister named Mary, who's dead. Four-year-old sister named Hattie. 33-year-old father named Gus. And her mother was 30 and her name was Delora. Delora was pregnant and they're all dead. And I can tell you cause of death in a minute, but she is the only one who has survived. So, so far, this story completely tallies with what she's been saying.
1: Right. You know, and considering Nellie's injury that you're describing as a gash to her head, it's either a laceration from a blow or an incisive wound. But chances are, I would think it's more from a a blunt force object because I think if a knife had been used that she would have had other injuries, more stab wounds, etc. So, I imagine that some, if not all, these family members have probably been bludgeoned to a point And whether or not there's additional violence inflicted on them, you know, I'm going to wait until you you tell me what's going on.
0: So you're right. There was a blunt object involved. So let me tell you what happened. So the parents and the four-year-old who was Hattie were all shot and beaten. The 18-month-old was beaten to death on her head with a rock, which I believe they found nearby. So let's assume the rock was also used on Nellie at the same time.
1: And is Nellie saying that this this beating and the shooting is occurring out in the cornfield?
0: No. The short answer is it sounds like they were sort of dumped here, which to me is a testament to Nellie playing dead through all of this. I can't even imagine... The trauma, and I know that I have read about victims, that's how they have stayed alive, is by playing dead. I could never put myself in that position in my mind to think, how would you even do that? Let alone, how does a six-year-old do that in the middle of the night when her parents are gone and there is no one there to protect her? It seems just incredible to me.
1: No oh, it it is amazing, and it's showing you know this child at age six had tremendous resilience and actually control over her own emotions in order to survive, kind of getting back to this body dump location. How far away is it from Nellie's house?
0: The murder scene is very close to the house where they live, but the murder scene is two miles from the cornfield, and this is why we're saying that they were murdered very close to their house and then transported to the cornfield and dumped in the cornfield about two miles away. And the cornfield is, sounds like, adjacent to Sally Carter's house where Nellie goes to. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. And, and this is where I'm thinking about the practical aspects. Let's assume Nellie's right and there's two offenders. You have five bodies, and that's including Nellie who's playing dead, they have to move these five bodies two miles away from where they're killed in order to dispose of them. Well, they're not carrying these two bodies, they have a transportation mechanism, you know, and we're talking 1894. So, I'm assuming they don't have a automobile. Nope. They must have something, you know, a horse drawn, mule drawn, something like that. So, that's also part of, you know, investigatively, if I'm now talking to witnesses, did you see a horse drawn something or another in the middle of the night? Did you hear anything like that?
0: I think one of the issues with this story is we are in 1894, where there were a lot of horse-drawn carriages and horse-drawn carts around. Now, you're right. We are in the middle of the night. It would not have been that unusual. And I'm not sure people sleeping in the area would have picked up on it because it was such a common sound. It could have been part of a dream. But I do think that's going to be important going forward to think about who these men were and do they have alibis, because we will be able to identify them later on. I want to turn to a medical question for you. I mentioned before that the mother who is 30 years old, Dolora, was heavily pregnant. And the medical question I have is, it says that she reportedly suffered a miscarriage when she died. And it says the expelled fetus is found among the carnage. The expelled fetus is found in the gravesite does that happen? Would that have actually happened or would actually... They're not saying that someone took a knife and cut her open. There's no evidence of knife work anywhere on this scene. So is that a thing? Would that have happened?
1: I'm assuming when you say heavily pregnant, we're talking about a, a woman that's in her third trimester. Mm-hmm. I have not worked a case personally in which a fetus has been expelled, but to textbook examples... There are situations to where the unborn child is expelled, but it's usually a result of decomposition. As the gases build up internally inside the the woman's body, now you have a force within that is forcing the fetus. Uh, In terms of third trimester, I can't think of any case example I've read about along those lines. So I don't know I think that uh, you know falls in the domain of of a pathologist you know s- to see would there be a mechanism which you know being subjected to violence is there like a, a uterine contraction that could cause that to happen but Having witnessed, you know, four kids being born myself and the amount of time and effort it takes for the, the, the woman who's purposely trying to get the baby out, you know, just this idea of some just sudden amount of violence and, and the body responding to be able to expel, in essence, an infant third trimester. I have a hard time believing that.
0: Well, I don't know what happened, but they said that the fetus was clearly visible, and she was, according to friends, very pregnant before this happened. So Nellie points to her family, who is all lying dead under straw in a shallow grave together, And Jimmy, of course, is alarmed, as anybody would be, and the two of them, this six-year-old and this 10-year-old, who are forever traumatized, of course, run back to his mother's house, to Sally's house, and Jimmy says, she's right. And at his mother's command, Jimmy Paul reveres his way across the countryside and tells everybody about this. That is how she gets the word out. There's no, we've talked about stories before where people ring an emergency bell. There's no emergency bell here. So, you know, she is sending this boy out to go tell everybody who I'm assuming now is awake you know, there's sunlight now, maybe there are roosters crowing, and he is warning everybody. He gets to one of the neighbors named George Taylor. He lives just about 400 yards from the crime scene, and George Taylor's, you know, tending to his cornfield. And Jimmy says, my mom is telling everybody to be cautious. There are two men maybe out there ready to kill people. And George says, what happened? And Jimmy details everything that happened. There's dead bodies. And then George says, you know, how do you know about all this? There are four people in this grave. That's unbelievable. This is partially my cornfield, too. How do you know this? And Jimmy says, well, there's a little girl who survived the attack and showed up at the house. And this is why you don't send a 10 year old out to do stuff like this, because now he is revealed. We don't know anything about George, but now he is revealed to someone that there was a survivor who could possibly identify the killers. And if George is involved in any way, I'm not saying he is, but if he's involved in any way, this could be a real danger to Nellie.
1: No, for sure, especially under these circumstances, because right now you don't have law enforcement responding at this time. You have, in essence, this is almost like, as you mentioned, the Paul Revere thing. This is the neighborhood alert system. Typically, and today, you know, law enforcement would be on that scene right away, and Nellie would be in a protective environment or a protected environment. But right now, Nelly is not. So if George is involved, and he's going, "Uh uh-oh, one is still alive and she can identify me, he has potential access to Nellie in order to eliminate her as a witness.
0: Yep. Like I said, this is why we don't send 10-year-olds out for various reasons to put out these kinds of messages. This seems like a good time to show you a crime scene photo. Now, as we know, 1894, photography was at its infancy, especially crime scene photography. So you should, Paul Holes, be really grateful that I can even give this to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thrilled. (laughs) Because rarely do I say anything about the 1800s and, oh, I have a photo, Paul. So this is a little hard to see but um, it's a black and white photo. One thing that I noticed that I thought was interesting, I'd like your comment on, is it seems like you can see the two adults. It looks like Gus is on the far left and there's a child in the middle. And then the mom, it appears to be on the far right. I can at least see that both parents seem to have their hands or their arms crossed. That does not seem normal for a victim of violence. Am I wrong? Is this some sort of atonement thing?
1: Well, the bodies have been placed here, and so the offenders have arranged these bodies in the way that they wanted to. The crossing of the arms, that appears to be purposeful by the offender, considering these bodies have been moved, you know, two miles, transported in some sort of vehicle to get to this location, and then either carried from the roadside into the middle of the cornfield, or the vehicle itself, you know, went up to where this body disposal is. But they're having to manipulate these bodies to get them into this very shallow grave. I'm not even sure there's, there's any earth that has been moved, but more deposited on the surface and then hay piled on top of them. I am seeing the arms crossed. Uh, I'm seeing that at least the three bodies, the two adults and the child, appear to be fully clothed. The clothing does not appear to be disrupted. Also notable that I can see, particularly on the mother, is the blood flows out of the nose and mouth area appear to be somewhat consistent with her laying on her back. And whether or not that occurred where she laid on her back at the original murder scene and that those blood flows dried and then she's transported, or she still possibly was bleeding at the time she's deposited here and you still you have some blood flows coming out which may mean that she didn't die right away she died while she was laying here in situ but they are arranged they're not just dumped You know, this is what's significant to me is, you know, typically when you have multiple bodies being thrown into a grave, you just see them being dumped on top of each other in a haphazard manner. These three bodies are laid right next to each other. They're all oriented in the same position, face up, heads all, uh, you know, to the right side of the photograph, feet towards the left. So the offenders kind of place them in a very regular manner.
0: And it's interesting also to me, I can't see the clothing clearly of the mother and of the little girl. It could be daytime clothing. The little girl looks like she could, the four-year-old looks like she could be wearing a dress. But the father pretty clearly to me is not wearing night clothes. It looks like he's wearing his suit. This is midnight that Nellie says these men came to the door. I'm wondering if this is people who are known to them because at least the father is dressed in what appears to me to be daytime clothing.
1: This is where victimology does need to be studied a little bit, is what was the family's routine? You know, what time did they normally go to bed? Would the father come home, you know, and stay in his suit up until the time he changed in order to go to bed? You know, so that's where if there's anybody out there that knows that since the entire family, you know, is dead except for a six-year-old, you know, Mm -hmm. hopefully Nellie would be able to answer those questions because that can give timeline information about, you know, when this happened happened. You know, a six-year-old telling me midnight, well, I'm not necessarily going to take that as gospel. Also, you know, understanding how the family routine during the evening could inform me, you know, okay, as you were mentioning, is this indicative that they were expecting somebody to come? So they stayed in their daytime clothes as opposed to going through their nightly routine and then somebody just unexpectedly showing up at the front door.
0: You're right, and Nelly turns out to be a wealth of information for investigators. Speaking of Nellie, I think it's always important to talk about the victims and the survivors, and I think in this story, it is startling, because I often forget ages. Once my kids have passed a certain age, I don't remember what they look like. I have a hard time Oh no figuring, <laughs> I have a hard time figuring out the ages of kids, to be honest. So I wanted to show you that is Nellie.
1: Oh, and so is that Nellie around the time of the homicides?
0: I believe so, because this is a pose and ended up in the newspapers. This looks six to me-ish, could be a little bit younger, but not far off.
1: No, I would say, yes, you know, she physically looks... Like, she's right around six. I I think what strikes me, you know, is her state of dress, her facial expression. She almost looks like she's more mature Mm -hmm. than a six-year-old.
0: Very serious looking, yes. Yes. course, they had to stand there for pictures for a very long time, so nobody (laughs) tended to smile in these pictures. But she does look mature. And here are her parents, Gus and Dolora. And this was obviously old because she's not pregnant in this photo. But they're, of course, very serious also. But he looks like he's in decent shape. I don't know, two adults and three children that they've attacked. There's a lot of confidence and we have to assume that she's right about the two men.
1: Let's say you have two adult males, but I believe you mentioned that they had been shot at least the deceased victims right mm-hmm. so now you have a firearm that's introduced into this this crime aspect and the firearm is the ultimate control mechanism so the children are going to listen to this adult offender this male offender and these two adults likely they see the gun even if it's just one offender they're probably going to do what that man says now you have two men do we have two guns here uh you know so these two men have absolute control over the victims
0: Let's go back to the story. George Taylor, the man that Jimmy encountered first, says, oh, my gosh, I know this family. It's the Meeks family. He's a tenant farmer. And he told Jimmy Gus is one of his employees because Gus, to a certain extent, is a tenant farmer. And so George has sort of lent out land to him to farm. So George says, I need to see what happened. And so he asks this 10-year-old to show him where the bodies are. And he says, instead of going through my cornfield and ruining all this corn, let's go hitch a horse and we'll go and ride through the property. And he says, I will figure out where this is and I'll come back and get you because Jimmy points to where this is and George goes out. And he looks and George never returns which is suspicious. Later on, he's seen riding his horse in a nearby city, but George does not come back for Jimmy and eventually Jimmy goes home. We don't know what that means yet, but we do know that now you've got at least one person who could be a suspect who knows that the little girl survived. So not long after Nellie goes to Sally's house, she emerges from the cornfield and Investigators are on the scene, such as they were in 1894 in rural Missouri, which, you know, just could have been a deputy. Whoever was around on duty, it could have been a very sort of rough type of force involved. And they find on a nearby road, two miles from the cornfield, a troubling piece of evidence. So on a stretch of road called Jenkins Hill, there's a lot of grass, it's a hill on a roadside, and there are very large pools of blood. And in this grave where the family is buried, there was not a lot of blood. So as I mentioned before, that was not the crime scene. This appears to be the crime scene. They find large pools of blood. They find what we presume is going to be the murder weapon, which is, I've never heard of this before, a bulldog revolver with three empty chambers. They find brain matter, and they find that bloody rock. So whatever happened here, the killers left behind both weapons.
1: Let me look up this bulldog.
0: And make sure you put in 1800s too, because it could have been different than whatever they say it is now. British bulldog that's what I see
1: no this it's right yeah so there's there's the original this Webley you know 45 caliber British Bulldog revolver manufactured in the 1870s and then there was other British and United States firearms manufacturers that in essence copied it. However, it is a 5-shot revolver that's chambered typically we don't know in this case if it's chambered at 45 or was chambered in in a 442 basically like a 44 but you know these are this is a large caliber revolver and it was left behind
0: But they called it a pocket revolver, which I thought was interesting. So it's not particularly large because it could fit in your pocket. But it sounds like, according to you, it's very uh, powerful, right? It wouldn't have a problem taking down three out of four people.
1: Oh, yeah. The caliber is large. The revolver itself is small. It's only got a two and a half inch barrel. You know, so, you know, typically when you think of a revolver that's not meant to go into a pocket, it's got a longer barrel. The longer the barrel, you know, the more accurate you are uh, with that gun. Typically, and this is somewhat of a minor issue, the force of the ignition of the gunpowder is able to propel the bullet faster out of a longer barrel than a short barrel. So, you know, a pocket revolver is generally meant for concealment um, as well as for short-range shooting.
0: Well. They sounded like this was premeditated. This sounded like they were prepared, at least with a weapon. I don't know if they were planning to kill the family and for what reason. We don't know yet. But the police, the investigators examined the scene, as I said, there is brain matter. They're assuming it came from the 18-month-old baby because she was beaten with a rock. They then say, well, clearly Nellie was beaten with that rock also because of the big gash on her forehead. She also has a huge bruise on her back. And... The investigators start to ask her a lot of questions. She's still in a daze, of course, six-year-old with a a head wound. But she starts to unravel this story. And I know you're going to have a lot of questions that we find answers to a little bit later. But right now, you, Paul Holes, are an 1894 investigator, and you're just trying to get anything that makes sense out of this kid. So investigators say, what happened? And she said, I don't remember how we ended up in a horse and wagon with these two men around midnight, but we did. And she said, this is what happened. We were going up the hill, which was Jenkins Hill. The man without whiskers said his feet were cold, and he decided to get out and walk along the side of the wagon. And when he did, he shot Papa. Papa, I guess, was not fatally shot then. He jumped out and started to run from the wagon. And then the mom screamed, and started to jump out, but they shot the mom, they shot the dad again, and then they shot the sister. And then they hit me in the head and I went to sleep. And she doesn't say anything about the 18 month old because that probably happened after she got knocked out. So she was knocked out at the time. She said, I came to a little while later and I was in the wagon still. And they said that at this point, Nellie is not particularly helpful. The investigators guessed that after this happened, and we don't know if this was their plan or what was happening. We just know that there's a chaotic scene happening. After it happened, the two killers loaded the bodies into the wagon, drove the two miles to the cornfield. They unloaded the bodies and piled them into a shallow grave. According to a police source, there was this grave there that had already been dug beforehand, but the size of it was small enough that it seemed intended for just one person. So now we have to figure out if that's true, that this was a grave that was intentionally dug for one person and they tried to get all four family members in it and then couldn't and covered it up with straw. Who was the one person in this family that was being targeted?
1: Circumstances, as Nellie describes them, you've got this entire family in this horse-drawn wagon. And what is compelling or telling to me is that the wagon stops and one man gets out and does sort of a, almost a blitz attack and shoots the biggest threat of the group, the man, Gus. What's standing out to me is here you've got two men, you've got a, you know, at least one is armed with a gun. Oftentimes, if they have the intent to kill or they're trying to extract information, it is a direct confrontation. The gun is out. Get down. I'm going to kill you. Tell me what I want or give me what I want. Then the shooting. It's almost as if these offenders did a ruse. They lured the family into this wagon. And then at a certain point, one offender decided this is the time to get out and and shoot Gus. So this is interesting because it sounds like this is to eliminate the family. And and maybe Gus was the primary target, but they couldn't separate Gus away from his family under this ruse. And so now they're dealing, we got the whole family, how are we going to deal with this? And they kind of had to tweak their approach on the fly. Mm -hmm. And now you've got more bodies than what the grave they dug ahead of time, but they just improvised, you know, well, we're still going to go to that grave site and we'll just hide it with the straw.
0: And I had wondered if they had known the whole family, and that's why they had to eliminate everybody, at least the mom, also, because she might have been able to recognize them also. We don't know yet.
1: Possibly. However, if they're stuck having to kill Gus in front of his entire family— Even if the family doesn't know who they are, I can see them just going, we've got to eliminate the witnesses Mm -hmm. because they could describe us. They can give the circumstances. Investigators might get enough information to identify who we are.
0: Exactly. So as the police continue to press Nellie and as her wound gets better and she gets some rest, she unravels some more details. And it is harrowing. I mean, this little girl and her ability to retell this story and remember things as time goes on is amazing. So the last thing that she told investigators was her dad was shot, her mom was shot, the four-year-old was shot, she was hit in the head, and she went to sleep. And she didn't know what happened to the 18-month-old, but we're assuming they wanted to stop the crying, which we're assuming happened, and beat her to death, too. So Nellie comes to and she is in the wagon. And she said that, you know, they're traveling along. The wagon comes to a stop. And this is when Nellie plays dead. She said she and her family members were carried off the wagon. She's pretending to play dead, but she remembers all of this. And she said, everyone is covered up with straw, which we know. What we didn't know what I thought first, initially, when we got into this case, was that this was just a cover-up. They put him in this grave that was meant for one person and said, well, we can't cover all of them up. Let's just use their straw. That is not what they wanted to do. She says she could hear the two men struggling to start a fire. Fire, yes. Did you suspect? I did not think that. But it was, unfortunately for the two killers, a very damp and misty night, and they were cursing and cussing. She said, when the man put me in the straw, the one with the whiskers, that's the only real description she had, the one with the whiskers kicked me on the back and said, they are all dead now. Them damn villain sons of bitches so we'll talk about a motive in a minute, but somebody was mad. They covered me up and I could not breathe good. I heard them say it would not burn as it would not catch. Mm -hmm. So they just left and that was it. And that's when she climbed out later when she heard the wagon go away. That's when she climbed out and went to Sally's house.
1: Right. So now, they had to improvise in order to get rid of the body. They tried to use the, the straw as fuel, but they couldn't get it to catch fire. This is where their their plan really goes awry. You know, first it's, oh, we've got the whole family with us. And right now, can't tell you why they couldn't separate. If, if it was just intended to be one person, and I'm assuming that's Gus right now, they weren't able to separate the family under the ruse. Now that they've killed this entire family, they are in a scramble to figure out, well, what are we going to do with the bodies? And you know this idea of the the straw being too damp to light the fire you know that's just part of the improvisation didn't work out and so now they're abandoning things and they must have been in somewhat of a rush there's a level of inexperience in terms of assessing whether or not Nellie is dead this is where my thought process is there's a revenge aspect to this homicide. One of these family members, likely Gus, did them so wrong, or one of them so wrong, that it was worth killing Gus, and then they end up having to take on the whole family and, and, and kill the whole family. Part of the interesting aspect to this is post-offense behavior, because these guys are driving away, recognizing that their original plan didn't go the way they were hoping. And they have to be nervous about, well, what's going to happen? You know, because now well, the bodies are going to be identifiable. The family's going to be found eventually in this cornfield.
0: And it gets worse for these two killers because, you know, we were right about our instincts about who they know and, you know, how personal is this and did Gus do something? Because the police say once Nellie has recovered, which takes her a good 24 to 36 hours sort of to just get out of this daze, they say, do you know who the man with the whiskers or the man without the whiskers are? And she said, yes, I do. I've seen him a lot. Because he owns the land that my father farms. And his name is George. And I know his brother, William, and it was the two of them. And George is the one who found out from Jimmy that Nellie survived. Yeah, This happens quickly, Paul. In 36 hours, they figure this out. There is a group of 500 men who show up scouring the area for these two brothers who are in the wind.
1: Okay. And and, and William, I take, lives locally as well. And he's fled just like we know George has fled.
0: Correct. And it sounds like once they interviewed Jimmy and Jimmy said, I told that guy, George, about this. And they said, what happened? And Jimmy said, well, initially he wanted me to take him to the bodies. But then he said, you stay here. I'll hop in my wagon. And now they think that George was out there in the cornfield trying to cover up his wagon's tracks where they found him and, and, you know, sort of like manipulate the evidence. And now, They are quickly indicted, these two guys, and the investigators know them very, very well. They are the wealthiest family in this area because they are possibly the most corrupt family in this area. They are in every kind of bad thing, and now I'm worried about Gus and what he did to them because he did something.
1: Was Gus, as an employee of George, was Gus embezzling money in some fashion? Was he not living up to some promise? You know, is Gus involved in some nefarious activities and could have exposed George and William, you know, as to what activities they were doing? Yeah. So now understanding who the offenders are You know, they have financial interests, this whole idea of corruption. Well, what exactly are they doing illegally? And sounds like they're willing to kill to protect their financial interests as well as whatever illegal activities they are involved with.
0: Well, the story I'm going to tell you is going to feel very familiar because it echoes through the last century and a half when all of this happened. So this is what happens. The brothers do everything possible that's illegal and what they are finally really caught with and they have not been able to pay off the law to get out of this it sounds like they are going to go to prison for this is they had been charged with forgery and larceny the taylors william taylor worked as a cashier in a bank and he was accused of raising a draft for $2 to 2000 and getting george to cash it so they were stealing money essentially in another town But the big, big, big charge for them, that was one charge, but they thought they could probably try to get their way out of it. What they had really been fearful of is they were accused of burning down a lumber yard for insurance and also for cattle rustling, which is Wild West terminology for cattle theft. So the cattle theft and the burning down the lumber yard is a pretty big deal. And they were very scared that people would turn on them. And when we're looking for a motive, it turns out that George and William Taylor had hired Gus to steal this cattle. And he did.
1: Yeah, so so Gus is fully aware of their illegal activities.
0: Participated in it, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, now are they eliminating Gus because they're fearful that he is going to be a witness? I mean, it sounds like Gus wasn't really embraced as being part of their group, if there is a group. You know, he wasn't a loyal follower of them. It almost sounds like he was hired specifically to steal this cattle, and they recognized that he has no loyalty to them, nor do they have any control over him. And he can turn state's witness against them in this crime.
0: Right. And I don't know anything about Gus's character other than he needed money because he's got these kids, he's got three kids and a a wife who's about to give birth. And I'm sure he was panicked. And when the tailors, one of whom was his boss, because he owned the land that he farmed, come to him and say, we just need you to do this. You're gonna divert these 31 steers that were supposed to be delivered to a buyer and you're gonna give them to us and we're gonna sell them. And he said, okay. So he did it, Gus was caught. He pled guilty and he was going to go to prison but a month before Gus's family was murdered, he was pardoned by the governor of Missouri on the condition that and I know you know you're gonna know what comes next, he was gonna be the star witness in this arson for insurance case, which was, you know, burning down the lumber yard and for cattle theft. He was gonna turn state's evidence.
1: And state's evidence against George and William.
0: Right. Old story, eliminate the witness.
1: Yeah. And also stupid because they waited until now Gus is already under the state's fold. Mm -hmm. You know, he's now a people's witness. And of course, if something happens to him, they become suspect number one.
0: So all of this information, the investigators say the Taylors needed to keep Gus silent. They had offered Gus, according to Gus's mom, Martha, offered him $1,000, which is a lot in 1894, to pack up and hit the road. $35,000 today. Get out of here. But Gus wasn't sure he wanted to do it. He did not want to deal with the Taylors. He had agreed to testify against them, so he felt like taking a deal from them would be super risky. And he would be tracked down by the law enforcement and then probably sent to prison, and his poor wife would be left with all these kids on her own. He didn't trust him, but it felt like he was being strong-armed by the Taylors to take the tailor's offer. This is where the confusion happens with the wagon. And this is, I think, what happens with the family. Martha believes that the tailors went that night to pick up Gus from the house under the pretenses of helping him relocate. Based on that grave, we know that's probably what was not gonna happen. But Delora, the wife, had a very bad feeling about all of this. She knew what her husband did. She knew he took this deal. And she said to keep Gus safe, she and the children were going to come along because, unfortunately, she assumed that they would not kill the entire family. But that's not what happened, obviously.
1: Yeah, because, you know, before you gave Martha's opinion on this, you know, that was one of the questions is how here now you have Gus under jeopardy You know, he's already agreed to testify against George and William. So when they show up at the front door, you know, how does the family just voluntarily get into this wagon? Because it doesn't appear that, you know, at least the way that the homicide went down, that there was force. They didn't force this family into the wagon. It's like, yeah, let's let's all go for a ride. And then they do this blitz style attack like it was completely unexpected. So this scenario that Martha is putting out there, I mean, it at least does make sense. It seems plausible to me.
0: Mm -hmm. So all of this unfolds. I don't know if the Taylors intended to murder the entire family quickly, but it all goes awry. They are in the wind for a couple of weeks. They are finally tracked down in Arkansas and taken back to the town of Carrollton, which is about 70 miles away from where they were. Of course, everybody hates the Taylors. There's no getting around that. Nellie is the star. She knows all of this information. And the brothers, actually, there was so much sentiment against the Taylors that when they were brought back on a train from Arkansas, it was forced to change route because there were 250 armed people in a lynch mob, ready to kill them. That's how much they hated these guys. So the brothers, of course, look very guilty. There are multiple people who testify that the brothers had threatened Gus Meeks, including Martha, Gus's mom. She shares the story about this plan, quote unquote, to relocate her son and how she was worried that that was not going to happen. So there is also a witness that the D.A. puts on the stand that's a worker who testified that he had seen George getting his horses ready, rubbing and currying his horses, which had been out in the mud. And he saw the wagon that was covered with clotted blood, some of which had trickled down the bed and stained the axles. 1800s, I mean, George could have said, I hit a deer or something. I mean, I don't think that is like rock solid evidence, but there was a lot of circumstantial evidence And the tailors just simply said, we don't have any idea what happened. We don't know anything. We thought we were going to get out of the charges anyway. Gus couldn't have said anything that would have particularly hurt us. We thought that they were going to leave and that was it. They have a couple of people who are on the stand that hear the gunshots. But really, there are no real witnesses except a six-year-old. And the defense is really trying to poke holes in Nellie's story. But, you know, on top of that, say, I've got alibi. Both of them, their wives say that both men were at home on the night of the killings. But, I mean, can we really ever take a spouse seriously as an alibi, ever? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. <laughs> no. Your wife your wife would lie for you if you were, you know, someone who was involved in a crime, would she really?
1: <laughs> oh, no, she thought I was involved in a crime. She would <laughs> she
0: would turn you in, huh?
1: <laughs> turn me over right away. <laughs> you know, this is and I know I've talked about this before is th- there's certain checkboxes when evaluating the veracity of an alibi that need to be checked in order to be confident in the alibi and This is where if there is that close personal relationship between the witness and the suspect, if they're saying, yes, they were with me that night and there's nothing else that can help support that claim, I don't put any weight on that because I've seen over and over again that that relationship trumps the concern about the suspect having committed the crime. Mm -hmm. And it's either because of the close connection in terms of there's actually emotional connection Or it's because that witness is in jeopardy themselves by the suspect. You know, once investigators leave and if they don't side on the the suspect's side, they potentially could come under harm.
0: Hmm. Well, it might have worked because in this trial, once they hear all the evidence, despite what Nellie says, the jury goes back, they deliberate, and it's deadlocked. There's a mistrial, seven to five, except... Because these guys are so sleazy, it turns out that they had bribed two of the jurors. I mean, they are put back on trial. There is a guilty verdict. And the reason I'm rushing through this is because, really, the interesting stuff happens after the verdict. So they appeal... It's a guilty. They're both sentenced to death. They appeal to the state Supreme Court. The verdict is upheld. And everything seems right with the world because the Taylors, who are the worst people in Missouri, it sounds like, are going to be executed and they are sitting on death row until they break out. And they do it successfully. And one gets away and was never found again. Oh, really? Yep. So George and William... They break out by knocking a bar out of the cell, poorly made jail, and they go to the roof and they use a 50-foot hose to climb down. And William is eventually captured, but George Taylor is gone. And William is hanged on April 30th, 1896. And, you know, he essentially says, I'm ready to meet my maker. Prejudice and perjury convicted me. You know, he says, I didn't do it. And my wife is now a widow. My babies are orphans. All of this playing to it. But his brother's gone, and he's taking the full rap for it. There are reports that George has been spotted kind of through the years. They said that. (laughs) Some of these stories, boy that said that he was actually caught at some point. Others say that he had been located, but never really tracked down. You know, there's no confirmation. Someone said there was a rumor that he fought in the Spanish-American War. Some people said he left the country. He got away with it. Whatever happened to him, unless somebody killed him and it wasn't reported, he got away with this. This terrible person killed an entire family because the dad made a mistake, one mistake. And that was it. And then tried to correct it and do the right thing. And all of them were dead except Nellie. Yeah,
1: it'd be so easy back during this time frame to be able to disappear and assume a new identity. This is where today there could be a lineage that comes from George that could be connected back to the Taylor family. So, genealogy could possibly identify George today in terms of what his new identity was.
0: Well, let me just get a really vivid to me picture of how this story ends. We started with Nellie Meeks, who was my hero in the story, as well as Gus's mother, Martha, who was brave enough to take the stand and say, this is what happened to my son. He was being intimidated. I didn't trust these guys. So Nellie lives with her maternal grandmother. That's who raises her. She has a massive scar on her forehead that she has for the rest of her life. And in her youth after her parents are gone, after everybody's gone, she joins a traveling carnival company and she sings about her near-death experience. She turns it into a moneymaker for her. You know, she's trying to make a living off of this. She's got this big scar. She is, you know, the survivor of a horrible crime that everyone in the country knew and so she spent her time you know doing that when she was younger she got pregnant in 1910 when she was in her early 20s and she died during childbirth oh wow and the pin on this is is that the daughter survived she had a little girl and Nellie had named her Hattie and Hattie was the four-year-old who obviously she was closest with who died what a story. I mean, my goodness, from beginning to end, a six-year-old.
1: You know, and I think that that's something that, in my experience, with some of the cases that involve these young kids, we have a tendency to place a level of worldly ignorance on somebody this this young. But it also, Nellie, really shows that they're so much more observant and in tune with the world than what we give them credit for and of course Nellie happens to have the predisposition of this survivor resilience you know to be able to play dead track down Sally and in essence you know get on the stand and testify against these two men that killed her entire family so she absolutely is a hero And, and it's just so so sad that she died so young
0: I love kids. I love my kids. I'm always shocked at the level of maturity that they sometimes display. And so, you know, I want to leave us with that feeling of just like looking at kids and just saying, gosh, don't underestimate them. They can be remarkable. And that makes me feel really good about my own kids. I feel like they're going to be and are right now remarkable.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's just you never underestimate them for sure.
0: Okay, Paul, I'll come back next week And we will not have a story involving children, thank goodness. I need a big break from that. But I will see you very soon with another Buried Bones.
1: I'm looking forward to it, Kate. Thank you.
0: Thanks. This has been an Exactly Right production.
1: For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash bones sources.
0: Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi.
1: Research by Marin McClashin, Allie Elkin, and Kate Winkler-Dawson.
0: Our mixing engineer is Ben Tolliday.
1: Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel.